Hi, let's turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Shall read verse 1. All the way to verse 14. The message this morning is from verse 5 to 11. You know that every time I have an opportunity to bring God's word to you, we've been uh, uh, journeying through the book of Romans. So please do turn there to hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may about? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One who has died has, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the dead he died, died to sin once for all. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray, and then I'll give you an allegory drawn from ideas that uh, Stuart Oliot, a man that I truly love, that he has given in his book. Let's pray. Lord, we praise your name for your word that is able to make us wise unto salvation, seeing that we have been born again to a living hope through the abiding and enduring word of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word set before us. Help us here today truly to be edified, to be built up, May we accept and receive the rebukes from your word. May we be apt to take the corrections from your word. Help us to be willing to be trained in righteousness. That we would be complete, lacking in nothing. That we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We ask these things. In Christ's name, amen. You know that I'm not very, I'm not a very good storyteller, but I'll try. Once upon a time, there lived a poor slave called, Who Are You? And a tyrant called, Sir Sin in his castle of despair. Poor you, and to do all that his cruel master commanded and required of him every day. And every day the master would push 
working hours until eventually who are you was working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The cruel master, Sir Sin, exploited poor you very, very much and increased his labors and burdens every day with no rest, no sleep. So poor you languished in misery and pain and tears. More demands were laid upon him every day. And so poor you attempted one day to escape. Actually, many times he attempted to escape. He was unsuccessful every time. He would put a ladder leaning with rungs against outside the wall, but every time he was caught by Sir Sin and beaten up senseless, sometimes beaten up almost to death. More load, more burden, more weight, more pain every day. Thankfully, the immediate neighbor was the sovereign king of the land who was generous, merciful, and gracious. Out of his great love, he was concerned about the situation in Sir Sin's castle of despair because of the constant screaming from poor you. He heard the cry of anguish from poor you, and thus he decided that he will miraculously rescue poor you from his pain by killing him. And so one day, sir, Sin found poor you dead. Not dead because of the labors of Sassin, but dead because the sovereign king had killed him. And so Sassin would no longer make any more demands on poor you. That master-slave relationship had been ended permanently. And so Sir Sin in disdain took the body of poor you and buried him outside his castle. Great king came to the grave and raised Sir, uh, excuse, excuse me, raised poor you and took him into his own palace of love. Cleansed him and clothed him in new robes. He adopted him into his family and made him not just a citizen of his kingdom, but a child to sit with him on his table. He made him heir of his incorruptible estate. Who are you? overcome with thankfulness, has now been delivered from the dom domain of slavery into this joy, love, peace, and freedom, in addition to immense wealth of, of generosity of the great king's palace. Yet immediate inheritance there. He knew that there was only one thing that he could do in gratefulness, to serve his new master with new resolve, new energies, even more and better than he ever served Sir Sin. His zeal was renewed, not because there were demands from the new master, but because of grateful heart. 
served the new master. The old master would constantly try to come and lay claims upon him, but the great king was greater, and he rescued and he kept him there in his palace of life. That's what the Lord has done for us. Poor you, it's poor you, it's poor me. So sin is ever trying to get us back into his castle of despair, but the great sovereign king will not let that happen. Amen. We thus have to serve a new master with a new resolve. Because all that we've needed, he has provided. Last week we saw that uh, we died in Christ. We were buried with Christ. Today we consider the fact that we are raised with Christ and live in Christ. So then we shall see what implications this carries for the now and the here and for the future too. And apply it as we go along. Three points from this passage. First of all, that uh, we are united uh, in Christ. And we are free in Christ and alive to God. We are united in Christ, free in Christ, alive to God. What does the Bible say? The first place, we are united in Christ. Look at, the, uh, at verse uh, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall suddenly be united with him in a resurrection like this. United with him in a death like his and united with him in a resurrection like his. They correspond. The emphasis of our union with Christ is clear. We are united with him in death, and we are assuredly, certainly, united with him in a resurrection like his. consider each of these union with Christ. There is this union death and union in resurrection. Verses 3 to 5 have this emphasis of the fact that our union with Christ is by death. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into his death, verse 4. And then we were united with him in a death like his, verse 5a. Moreover, we were crucified with him in verse 6, verse 8. And the point is clear that Christ's death was our death. He died the death we deserved because of our sins. When Christ died, we died with him. And this is all illustrated in baptism. We are buried with him. In the waters of baptism in symbolism. Because that's what really and truly happened. This is important. Insofar as our relationship with sin is concerned, we died to our former master. Sin. Christ supervised that death. Because you see, Christ supervised that death by a death like his. This is how the tyranny of Sir Sin of our lives was permanently curtailed, permanently removed. And then our union in Christ is also in a resurrection like his. 
It's not simply that we died. It's also that, thankfully, we were raised. The Lord did not leave us to rot in the grave of sin and misery. In his mercy and grace, he raised us. And so we read, we were buried therefore, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, for the purpose that, for the reason that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You notice that the man who is dead in Christ and buried in Christ is also raised in Christ. That correspondence is obvious. This is a special work of God's grace upon him, upon us. So all the dead are not raised together. All the dead are not raised, but our Lord himself is the first fruit from the dead. And for your information, in the coming weeks, in April, I would be be doing a 10-week eschatology classes in our Sunday school classes, and we shall talk about resurrection and all that. That's not the time yet. But the point is very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that our Lord himself is the first fruit from among the dead. So resurrection was a special work of God upon the body of Christ by which he was raised up. And that work began upon the head will continue. Till all the members, us, partake of it. So, what does it mean being raised with Christ in a resurrection like his? Two things. First of all, it's that the glory of the Father involved our resurrection. When you and I are raised out of our death in sin, this is a spiritual resurrection, it is not merely God's power in display. It's not just God's wisdom, infinite wisdom, that is sin. It is the glory of the Father. Every child of God that has been quickened has been quickened by the glory of the Father. Our salvation is not just the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and the redeeming work of Jesus, but it's also the loving work of the Father described here as the very glory of the Father. If the tiniest spark of spiritual life has to be created by the glory of the Father, what will be the glory of that life when it comes into its full perfection? We shall be like Christ and see him as he is. Think of this. There is in you that which it required of the attributes of God to create. That is his glory. The glory of the Father. The absolute perfections and majesty of the Father. God could make a world by power alone. But you must be raised from the dead by his glory, not just by his power and by his wisdom. So it involved the glory of the Father. And so then when we, when with Paul, we pray that prayer in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Where Paul 
counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is willing to bear all suffering, all loss, and to count all, all things as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on, on faith. Then he has this, this yearning, this holy longing, that I may know him, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is his longing. Is that your longing too? It is my longing. So the glory of the Father is involved in our resurrection. Number two, then there is the assurance, this resurrection. Because we shall, the Bible says in verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And mark that word, underline that word, certainly. We, with Paul and with every Christian, everyone who names the name of Christ, we shall certainly, we shall assuredly, as to our soul and spirit, the resurrection has indeed begun upon us. It's not that it will come upon us, the resurrection. It's already upon us. Now, I'm not in any way saying that it has come upon our bodies yet. But it will be given to them, to our bodies at the appointed day. But for the present, that special work of grace has been assuredly wrought upon us by which we have been raised up from among the dead. We have been raised from the domain of sin. We've been raised from death and have been conveyed into the domain of righteousness and life in a resurrection that is described here or compared here with that of Christ. We have been given new life in Christ. We no longer live in sin or for sin because we are in Christ. We live for Christ and in Christ. We don't live in sin or for sin. We live in Christ and for Christ. We are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of light. We belong to Christ, not just by death, but also by resurrection. So I ask you, what is your condition right now? What's your condition right now? You and me were once like the rest of the sinners around you, around me. Dead in sin. As Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were under sin, sin, under his tyranny. We did his bidding every hour, every minute, every second. We lived in sin. We slept in the grave of evil conduct. But the Lord, by his Power, by his mercy, by his grace, 
by his glory has called me and you out of that grave. He saved me and you out of that deadness of sin. And now you are alive. Now I am alive. But not. We are alive amidst the dead. We are alive amid this world of death. We are like those who have been raised from the dead in the stillness of night and wake up and sit on the grave waiting, uh, waiting for the morning to dawn so that uh, we can find our way out of the cemetery. Meanwhile, we cannot speak with the dead. This man who has been raised from his grave might perhaps rise up and sit on his own grave and look around. Everyone is dead. It's a, a silent cemetery. No one is living. And he has to look around for the living. And he knows that there can be no fellowship with the dead. And it's the same thing for us. We, there can be no fellowship here in this worldliness, in this worldly cemetery. But what communion are the living with the dead? We cannot covenant with those who are dead. God has raised you up from among the dead, from out of the company among whom you lived. And I pray that you do not go and scratch into the earth to tear up the grave to find a friend from, the, from among the dead. Because corpse cannot be your friend. You can make no covenant with the worldlings. For they are still dead their sins, but you are alive in the newness of life. Can you imagine this? Someone who rents open a coffin, cries out to the dead, come, come, you must drink with me. Or come, you must listen to the music with me and dance with me. If anyone were to do that with the dead, even if it was, it was their own spouse, we would know that they are beyond grief. They've lost their minds. We dread the idea of associating with the dead. Some are some of you, but such are some of you. You find delight in the world and with the worldlings. You make covenant with them. You do business with them. You must leave and abandon any friendship with those who have been in the cemetery with you and seek the living now that you are alive. And those of you who are married to the dead, thankfully the Lord saved you. But your spouse is still unsaved. You have to conduct yourself in their presence as those who are alive. Let them hear you praying for them to come to life, to be saved. Let them hear you. Pleading with God the Savior, the one who is the resurrection and the life, that he may save them too. They must never imagine that they are like you. 
by the way you live with them. So that if they shout at you, you also shout back. If they lie to you, you also lie to them. No. They have to see that there is a difference between you who is living and them who are not yet aligned in salvation. They have to see godliness and contentment in you. They have to see the love of God in you. They have to see that you love Christ and love is bright. They need to see you living a Christian life, abhorring evil, departing from iniquity. As the Bible says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And we shall consider that as we move on. But God has raised you from the dead. Some of you strike deals with unbelievers and set up companies with unbelievers. And later on, you discover that they want you to bribe, get business. Of course, what do you expect? They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And when you say no, they don't understand you because they think, how on earth are we going to do business if we are not going to give kickbacks? And bribes. But you cannot be in yoke with them. And so, if you have set up a company recently with unbelievers, you need to pull out. And the, the Bible will talk about that later. But there cannot be any relationship between the living and the dead. There cannot be any relationship, any covenant between light and darkness. There cannot be, you cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers because the Bible asks you the question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? It's in 2 Corinthians 6, from verse 14. The church of Christ is of the living God. If you are alive, you will find the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, so beautiful that you will identify with her and you will find this company sweet. You will find communion with the heavenly pilgrims, a journey worth the taking. Dear Christian, walk with the faithful. Walk with the hopeful. And all those who seek the gates of celestial city, not with anyone else. You might meet up with Mr. Worldly Wise, and he will turn you away from the path that leads to life, the celestial city. He will encourage you to go into the enchanted land, and eventually you will be caught up by giant despair, and you will be put in that castle of giant despair and that will be a miserable life. If you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, you know what I'm talking about. Secondly, we are free in Christ. In our new status, we know that Christ, we know that uh, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In Christ there is life and resurrection. In Christ there is no other dominion above him. Thus in Christ's death, that last enemy has been defeated. The enemy of God's people no longer rules, no longer reigns, no longer has dominion. 
It is Christ who has dominion, and those in Christ cannot be under the dominion of the power of sin. Because you see, death itself has been killed by Christ's death. Sin has lost every territory that Christ occupies. Death has been defeated wherever Christ steps. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We mock death when we are in Christ. Because you see, the power, the power of, uh, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, what the Bible says. So Christ, being raised from the dead, he will never, never die again. And those who are in him will never, never taste second death. If you're in Christ, have this wonderful new status in Christ. We are granted freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the world, freedom from Satan, freedom. The occupation and infestation by the evil spirits. We are granted freedom because when the Son of Man, when the Son of God sets you free, you are free indeed. This has two implications, this, this freedom. First of all, the old self is crucified. See, the gospel always begins with the bad news. The old self has to be dealt with. And the opening statement of verse 6 and verse 9, which have already been considered, is very specific. We know. It's what the Bible says. We are sure. We are convinced beyond any reasonable doubt. We are confident. What do we know? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you are not enslaved to sin, what are you? If you're not a slave, you are free. If you missed it, verse 7 tells you, for one who has died has been, one who has died has been set free from sin. One who has died has been set free from sin. The confidence we have in Christ is that our own flesh was crucified when Christ was crucified. This means that the old self, Mr. Flesh, is dead. He's dead. Because you see, it was crucified with Christ. And we are told the purpose for which the old self was crucified with Christ was this. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does this mean? It means that the stony heart, the stony heart that does not flinch at the command of God, the stony heart that doubts the royal promises, the stony heart that does not heed God's decrees. Is cut. It is amputated. Permanently cut of your body. And trashed forever. And in its place, there is an implant from heaven. A new heart. A heart of flesh that trembles at the word of God. It means that the body of sin, meaning 
the body enslaved to sin and following the demands of sin is killed. So that it's no longer able to fulfill the appetite of sin. It is crucified and killed and brought to nothing. Its place is taken. Its throne is overthrown in order that the king of kings may be forever enthroned. The king of that throne up until Christ came was seen. But when Christ came into your heart, he occupies the throne of your heart. And all dominion of sin is swept. Its rule in our lives is overturned. Sin is completely dealt with so that we are no longer slaves to sin. Sir, sin cannot find entrance into the palace of life. He cannot be allowed into the palace of life by the sovereign king. You see, when, the, when poor you died, his flesh is unyielding to the demands of Sassin. It is by way of death that our freedom from Sassin is procured permanently. Then we are free from sin. Because the Bible says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The only permanent way to be freed from the dominion of sin is to die. Not, not physical death, but spiritual death. Those who have died physically, and use that analogy, can no longer continue to sin because they are dead. To be able to sin, one must be in the body of flesh. And this, is, this, this was the, the way, uh, the Lord's way of freeing us from the domain of sin and dominion of sin and the power of sin. He did this by crucifying our flesh and killing the body of sin in us. And this, my dear brothers and sisters, set us on the path to freedom from the power and the dominion of sin. We cannot be enslaved to sin. This set us on this path of freedom. So what does this freedom from sin mean? That's a phrase there in verse 7. Is it to say that we are brought to a point where we no longer sin? Do Christians sin? Yes, do Christians sin? Christians sin, but that's not, not the subject of chapter 6. So we're not going to talk about it. We are going to talk about Christians sinning in chapter 7. Right now, the encouragement is you cannot say that you've been saved by grace and continue in sin. Is the point of chapter 6. It's urging you to sanctification. Then we get to chapter 7 and we are very realistic. The encouragement here is you cannot afford to constantly be going up the lander at the palace of life and you're, you're ever peeping at the castle of despair and wondering, what's going on there? Who is the new slave there? Some of us are like that. So, Sassin sees us from his, from his dungeon as we are waving at him. 
says, you need to covet coming this way. You see how the slaves, that castle of despair, are ever running up and about? I think that they are physically fit there. Covetousness. The urge from Sassin, because he still wants to be the master of your life. Thankfully, the master will always come by his spirit and tell you, my dear son, you cannot go there. You cannot be going to look at the castle of despair. There is no hope there. And thankfully, you turn. Because lastly, it's that we are alive to God. Verse 11 is very categorical that we must consider ourselves Dead to sin. You can see the emphasis. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our new condition. We are alive to God. And we are alive to God in the following ways. We live with Christ. That's what the Bible says here. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Since it is true that we were united with Christ in death and united with Christ in resurrection, surely we are united with him in this new life. The fair conclusion is that we also live with Christ. So what does living with Christ mean? It is that we trust Christ. We depend on Christ. We live for Christ and we serve Christ. That's what it means. We do the works of Christ in our new life. New condition, a new status. We don't serve ourselves anymore. We don't serve our sin anymore. We serve Christ. We live with Christ. We enjoy his peace as our prince of peace. We, we are now reconciled to God by Christ. And now there is peace with God. To live with Christ is the opposite of living for sin. We have a new master and a better master for that matter. And later on, we are described as slaves of righteousness. In chapter 6, verse 18, now we must present our members as slaves of righteousness in verse 19 of chapter 6. So we live with Christ. It's what being alive to God means. And then secondly, death no longer has dominion over us. Being alive to God means that death no longer has dominion over, over us, verse 9. Sin does not control us. Death does not reign over us. Instead, Christ has dominion over us. He who is the resurrection and the life has dominion over us. And in his dominion, he has overthrown every other dominion. He has conquered every other foe every other enemy. We are set on this path of life and any other path is nullified. We are under a new dominion of life. In the dominion of life, we live in Christ. And then thirdly, we live to God. And what does it mean to live to God? It is to live to serve God. The new life that God gives us is a life of active obedience and service to God. Have you ever read anywhere in the Bible that now that you've been saved, lie down, sleep in the newness of life? Have you read that anywhere? Yes? No. God's children are called out to walk and to keep walking 
and to run with perseverance the race that has been set before us. God's children are not of a sluggish, lazy race. No. It's a new life of zeal and vigor and fervency. Pray that the Lord may rebuke our slothful zeal. We cannot sleep as do others, knowing that we have been redeemed for service. The new life that we have in Christ is like that of angels. Have you read anywhere of angels lying down, sleeping? Angels are called ministers of fire. They are ministering spirits to the hairs of life. Angels never spend their day in slumber or sloth, but they are flames of fire ministering to those who inherit salvation. So the new life in a Christian is a quick, energetic, forceful life of service to the kingdom of God. The new life produces a holy walk as soon as it is created. If you've been born of God, you've cast off your lethargy and are ready to run the race set before you with perseverance. So spiritual health, we all with divine order and burn with holy fervency, delighting yourself in serving the Lord. But are you serving the Lord? And then lastly, as we are alive to God, is that we are alive in Christ. Because the last verse there, verse 11 says, we are then to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are not only alive to God, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. For all we do to God, all we do to God is in Christ, never outside of Christ. Let us see then how Christ lived. The 40 days after his resurrection, because we spoke of the resurrection like his, Christ, after his resurrection, he spent and he spent and he was spent all on earth to God. How did he do that? He was comforting the saints, manifesting his person, giving forth the gospel, urging a life of obedience to God, doing good. And so for the few days we have to live here on earth, we must live to Come for the saints, set forth Christ by spreading the honors of his name. We are to preach the gospel to every creature. That's why today we have set a table there with gospel tracts for you to take and distribute to your friends. Please visit that table. The brethren will be there to give you some gospel literature. To go and spread the honors of Christ. And that's why we have Passion for Mission Conference coming up in April, so that we may train you, so that you may know how to evangelize. What about now that Christ is ascended? How does he live to God? What does that mean that he lives to God? He lives to manifest the divine character of God the holy character of God and to build and progress the kingdom of God. He sent his Holy Spirit to help us in our weaknesses, to be our helper, our comforter, our paraclete, so that we may be bold witnesses in the building of, our, uh, of, of Christ's kingdom. So we look at Christ and we know that he is interceding for us in heaven. 
and His Spirit is hearing Him and helping us to pray as we should be praying. So we look at Christ and we see justice and truth and power and love. We see holiness and glory of God. We see the world of the divine attributes of God in Him. And this is what we are to spread on earth. So, my dear Christian brother and sister, we are to live unto God. The way the old King James Version puts it live unto God. God is to be seen in me. God is to be seen in you. God is to be seen in us. We are to show for the divine love and divine compassion and the divine patience and divine tenderness and divine kindness and divine patience. We are to, to be bearing that fruit of the Spirit. We are to manifest God. Living to God in Christ to fulfill the purpose for which we were made. That is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever in every one of our efforts and ventures and enterprises. But I ask you, how much do you live in Christ unto God? By pleading with people to be reconciled to God and pleading for the people to God that he may reconcile them to himself. We are to live for the same by preaching that sinners may hear and that the elect may live. You are to live by teaching that the chosen may be saved, teaching by your life, teaching by your words, teaching by your actions, that God's glory may be known and that his decrees may be fulfilled. Jesus lives unto God, delighting himself in God. And so we are called upon to live in the same way, Christ being our helper. Be a Christian. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be blessed this way. Be happy. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice in the Lord. So our sure Redeemer lives unto God. And his redeemed are to live unto God. That is, in constant fellowship with God. Not you. By the Spirit of God? Can you not, by the Holy Spirit, live unto God? Communing with God in prayer, with Christ, communing with God in His Word? Do you pray? How many times a day do you pray in communion with God? Oh, I know. When you wake up and when you sleep, when you eat, you also remember to pray. But that's it. That's your prayer life. No, dear believer, that's not communion with God. Praying only when you wake up and when you sleep and when you eat, that's almost like an animal. You have to pray more and find time to pray more. Is it inconveniencing to you to pray? To read the word of God? For some of us, it's more inconveniencing to read the word of God than to be stuck in traffic. It doesn't end up, does it? We are to pray without ceasing. And we are to read the word of God without ceasing. We are to commune with God in prayer and fasting. We are to live unto God in Christ. Not just in the mortification of sin, but also in the 
edification of our souls. Once again, I remind you as I conclude, you are dead to sin. You are. You're a, a Christian. And if you want to be a Christian, you have to die to sin. You cannot wallow in sin. You have to repent of sin and flee from sin. And Christ saves sinners. Put your trust in Christ and put to death every sin. I say, Christians are hunters and gatherers. In what way? Christians are hunters of sin and gatherers of righteousness. And all this is for God in Christ. So see to it that you live forever in fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Let's rise up to sing the last hymn, I greet thee whom I sure redeemer art. This is a song by Calvin. You're saying that this is my sure redeemer. He is my only trust and savior of my heart. And whatever he went through, he had gone all that for my poor sake. So we pray that he would continue to care for us. Let's give us a tune.